0: How many times have you threatened someone that if they continue what they're doing that you will leave them or that if they continue their antics or things that annoy you you will no longer be their friend and it comes to that point when they won't stop that you finally have had enough that you actually leave them because you can't put up with them anymore and they have no desire to change I'm sure many of you have said that to friends and family. But if I were to ask you, would you ever imagine or believe that God could say those very same words to the people He loves? You may say no. But surprisingly, there was a day in history when God did just that, when God in His glory left this earth not to come back for hundreds of years. It was when His people would not stop their sinful ways and would not change from their wicked deeds. It was a very sad day in history when God's glory left His people. We want to unpack that incident so that we can avoid it happening in our own relationship with the Lord and to avoid that happening in our church. May the lessons we learned this morning from the Word of God teach us so that there will be no barrier in our fellowship with Jesus. This morning, I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ezekiel. We'll be looking at chapters 8 to 11. Four chapters, of course... We won't have time to go through all four chapters in detail, but as as I encouraged you last week, would you go back home soon after the sermon is preached to go and actually read chapters 4 to 11 in its entirety. It is one vision, one complete thought. And so turn with me in your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 8. If you're new to the Bible, it is after the book of Lamentations and before the book of Daniel. We are studying the book of Ezekiel. Now as you're turning to this passage, just a reminder that in the Old Testament, the glory of God, the very physical presence of God, resided in Jerusalem. If someone were to ask you in the Old Testament times, where does God reside? You would answer, He resides in Jerusalem, in the temple, specifically in the Holy of Holies. In the Holy of Holies in the temple, there is only one quote-unquote furniture, and that is the Ark of the Covenant. And unlike movies like Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark, the glory of God does not reside inside the Ark of the Covenant. The glory of God resides in the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant, in between the two cherubim that were on top of the Ark That's why no one was allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies in the temple except the high priest once a year. And even then, he was not to look directly at the glory of God in his presence lest he die. And that's why he brought in a censer with incense that shielded a direct view of God. That was also why no one could touch the Ark of the Covenant or else they too would die. Unfortunately, even though God's presence resided in Jerusalem, which was really something prestigious, the people of Israel took it for granted because they continued to live in sin, especially those living in the city of Jerusalem. They continued to do wicked things in spite of the fact that God's presence and glory was residing with them in the city. Last week we talked about the judgment of the Jewish people prophesied by God. It was a terrible judgment which will culminate in the siege and the destruction of Jerusalem. Which would prophetically come true when the Babylonians came and destroyed the city in 586 B.C. But what horrible sins and wickedness did the people actually commit to deserve God's rightful wrath. It is spelled out in chapters 8 to 11. In the first three verses of chapter 8, we find out that Ezekiel is shown a vision on the sixth year of Jehoiachin's exile. Exactly 14 months after he first saw a vision that is recorded in chapter 1. And for those of you who like dates, historically, it would put this vision on September the 17th of 592 B.C. According to verses 1 to 3 of chapter 8, in this prophetic vision, while the elders of Judah were in his house seeking counsel, if you remember from a few weeks ago, Ezekiel was unable to leave his house unless God instructed him to go, so he was homebound. Ezekiel, in this vision, sees a theophany or a Christophany. And in this theophany, which is an appearance of God, he transports Ezekiel body in Babylon, but spirit to Jerusalem. And there God takes Ezekiel, as verse 3 tells us, to the north gate of the inner court of the temple built by Solomon. This is God's holy place. But God is going to show Ezekiel on a tour of the temple just how wickedness had worked its way into the lives of his people and into the very holy places of the temple. It will be a sad vision of sin's ugly progression. And so if you're taking notes, and you want to outline this, the first thing we're going to take a look at, number one, is sin's ugly progression. What does sin's ugly progression look like? What is the progression of wickedness and sin? Let's take a look. Chapter 8, verse 4. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there, like the vision that I saw in the plain. And God said to me, Son of man, lift your eyes now toward the north. So I lifted my eyes toward the north, and there, north of the altar gate, was this image of jealousy in the entrance. There in the north gate of the temple of God, the people had put an idol. Imagine that. And Ezekiel, in verse 5, refers to it as the image of jealousy. This idol provoked God to be jealous for His people. God was deeply offended by this idol in His place. A place that was supposedly to be holy. As mentioned in previous sermons, jealousy is not a sin if that jealousy is for something that is rightfully yours, so that you can be rightfully jealous of your wife, rightfully jealous of your children, as God is rightfully jealous of his children. And for God to see an idol that was taking the people's rightful worship of the one true God to that false graven image, the Bible says he was rightfully jealous Although unnamed, many biblical scholars believe that this idol is Asherah, the Canaanite goddess of fertility. Because previously, evil kings like King Manasseh had done such a thing, setting up an idol in God's holy temple. Look at verse 6. Furthermore, he said to me, son of man, do you see what they are doing, the great abominations that the house of Israel commits here? to make me go far away from my sanctuary now turn again you will see greater abomination after seeing this idol so close to where the glory of God recited God says very clearly that this wickedness and sin will make me go far away from my sanctuary would you circle that phrase in your Bible would you underline highlight that in your Bible and then write off in the margin these words Sin drives God away. There is no verse in the Bible more clearly stated that sin drives God away. This abomination makes me go far away from my sanctuary. If idol, wickedness, sin is what the people wanted, then God is not going to stick around My friends, you and I need to understand this. God won't fight for our attention. God won't fight for our attention. There is no Bible verse that says God is going to entertain us, wave his hands up and down to try to get our attention. He has already done so much. He has poured out his grace. He's already poured out his mercy in our lives. And that should be enough for us to willingly seek and worship him. As Christians, if we want God to be with us, and if we want to fellowship with Him, then we should avoid sin. It is as simple as that. Because if we are willfully sinning and living in disobedience, and living in wickedness, then our relationship and fellowship with God will be strained. You know, I often hear a lot of Christians misuse a Bible verse. It's their favorite. It's a favorite of theirs, but they don't know where to find it in the Bible, God never leaves us nor forsakes us. Do you know where that's found in the Bible? God never leaves us nor forsake us. And they love that Bible verse, and we all do. But somehow, we abuse this theology, and we believe that God will never leave us nor forsake us, and so we will continue to live in our sin. Because He's promised never to leave us nor forsake us. It is a convoluted thought that does not befit the context of that verse. The Bible is very clear. A holy God will not stick around to be in intimate fellowship with one who sins and lives a wicked life. That's why for many of us, spiritual growth and spiritual maturity and love for God is not where we believe it should be. We're not growing, Pastor. How do I find the love that you have and the passion for God that you have? It's not happening in my life. Well, it's not happening because there's undealt sin in our lives. You see, the first step in sin's progression in our lives is 1A, if you're taking notes, when sin is in plain sight, unchecked and accepted. When sin is in plain sight, It is unchecked, and it is accepted. That's why I've warned many of us that if you allow sin, a little sin, or little character slippage in your life to take root in your life, to somehow be accepted, and and you say it's okay, then be careful because now sin's progression will begin to take place in your life. Next week is the start of school. And I'm looking forward to speaking at the high school chapel as I always do. And I've warned them many a times. And I tell them, you should not cheat. And sometimes they get on my case, Pastor, everyone cheats in Chinese. It's just not in our school. Every Chinese school in the Philippines, their students cheat in Chinese. It is a normal fact of life. And we even laugh about it. But I tell them, If you accept this practice as normative in your life, then I feel sorry for you. Because then you as a student would be no better than the politicians that cheat today and whom your parents are mad at. What's the difference? There is no difference. Because these are sins that are in plain sight, somehow unchecked and now accepted, As normative now if you think bringing an idol into the house of God was bad verse 6 tells us that things are about to get worse look at verse 7 to verse 10 so he brought me to the door of the court and when I looked, there was a hole in the wall and God said to me son of man dig into the wall and when I dug into the wall there was a door And he said to me, go in and see the wicked abominations which they are doing there. So I went in and saw and there every sort of creeping thing, abominable beast, and all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed all around on the walls. God brings Ezekiel to a portion of the wall of the inner court where there is a hole, a small hole. And God tells Ezekiel to dig at that hole where he makes that hole a lot bigger. And he sees a door through that hole. It is hidden inside the temple. God tells Ezekiel, enter that door. And when he opens that door and enters that door, he sees all kinds of crawling things, abominable beasts, idols of every type. Perhaps these are the idols of various animals that the people of Canaan worship. Perhaps these were all the idols of all the nations that surrounded Israel that the Jewish people had adopted at one point or another in their history. But the point is, it was well hidden in the wall. It was inside the very holy temple of God. It was hidden in secret. But look, it gets worse. Look at verse 11. And there stood before them 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel, and in their midst stood Jazaniah, the son of Shaphan. Each man had a censer in his hand, and a thick cloud of incense went up. They were praying. Ezekiel sees 70 men. He identifies them as leaders of the city of Jerusalem. And to his surprise, he sees someone he knows. It's Jazaniah. And Jeazaniah comes from the family of Shaphan. And Shaphan in the scriptures is a family that is a faithful follower of the living God Yahweh. These people in the family of Shaphan love the Lord. They were faithful to God. And so it shocked Ezekiel to see the son of Shaphan, Azaniah, there with these seventy men. The impact of the shock it would be the same impact, to put it into your context, if you were to see me walk out of Pegasus or a strip joint. Again, that's an example only. You never find me there. Just need to clear, make sure that's straight. But that would be the shock. And when Ezekiel sees Azaniah, what are you doing there? He shouldn't be there. What were they doing? Verse 12 and 13. And he said to me, son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel do in the dark? Note that, in the dark. Every man in the room of his idols. For they say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. And he said to me, turn again, and you will see greater abominations that they are doing. The 70 leaders of Jerusalem were each offering prayers to their own preferred gods. That's how many gods there were that were hidden in the temple of God. This was inside the holy place. Why were they doing it in the dark? Because you and I know we do things in the dark that we don't want other people to see. We often do things in the dark because we know it's wrong. And they did things in the dark thinking God could not see them. That's what they said. The Lord does not see us. And they thought that they could do whatever they wanted because God's judgment was upon them and he had forsaken the land. They were justifying their sin. It was a warped view of God. It was their sin that was causing God's judgment on them. And they said, well, God has abandoned us. We can do whatever we want. And then he doesn't see us. Well, they were sorely wrong because God does see them. That's how he's able to point Ezekiel to this hidden door inside the temple where these 70 leaders of Israel were worshiping idols of many different types. You see, my friends, the progression of sin goes from sin in plain sight, unchecked and accepted to the dark hidden corners of our lives unseen by any except God. And that's 1B. Sins in the hidden corners of life, unseen by any except God. Let me ask you a question this morning. Which is worse, sin in plain sight or sin that is hidden? I would suggest to you this morning that sin that is hidden is worse than sin that is in plain sight. Because it is in the dark places of your heart and my heart that you and I begin to think that God does not care and does not see. And then when we have that in our minds, then we have the tendency to allow that sin to be ingrained as part of our lives. Because then we are no longer ashamed to do it because we think no one will ever find out. Hidden sins are harder than the ones in plain sight because now there is no one to rebuke you no one to keep you accountable no one to call you and call you out and say hey you know what you're wrong and in the darkness of our hearts we choose whether we want to deal with these sins or not the sins hidden in our hearts and hidden in the dark places of our lives are the sins we choose whether we want to deal with or not if someone were to go into your homes and see what you did behind the closed doors in your homes, what would they find? If someone could peer into the dark places of your heart, what would they see? I'm sure all of us would find sins that are quite dark in each one of our lives. That's why we should not be surprised, and yet we are surprised and shocked when we find out that a pastor has had moral failings. Do not be shocked. I am human just like you. I struggle with sin just like you. My heart broke this week. And if you're following some Christian news, you'll find out that Bill Hybels, again, has been accused by another woman. There have been 10-plus women now who have accused Pastor Bill Hybels of sexual harassment, inappropriate actions, sexual misdeeds. Here is a pastor that had brought a congregation of 25 to the fifth largest church, to become the fifth largest church in America. More than 40,000 people would hear his messages every week. And everyone was shocked. They would not believe the accusers at the very beginning because these sins were so well hidden. Pastor Bill could not have done that. But accusation after accusation came, indicating a pattern. My friends, this is but an example of the dangers of hidden sin, because hidden sin, left unchecked in the darkest places of one's heart, will begin to multiply in effect, greater things. But these hidden sins that Ezekiel sees are not even the worst of it. It gets worse. Look at verse 14 and 15. So he brought me to the door of the north gate of the Lord's house. And to my dismay, women were sitting there weeping for Tammuz. And God said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? Turn again. You will see greater abominations than this. Ezekiel was brought by God to the entrance of the north gate of the temple. There he sees many women. What are they doing? They're crying. They're weeping for Tammuz. Tammuz is a Mesopotamian god, a deity associated with fertility and vegetation. These women had replaced the worship of the one true God who alone gives children and gives life and gives rain with a false god who can really not do anything. But the difference here now is that what you see is that there is an emotional connection with the sin. They are crying, weeping for Tammuz to answer them. This is part of the ugly progression of sin, 1C, an emotional connection to sin. 1C, an emotional connection to sin. My friends, when you long for sin then the things of God no longer appeal to you. When you are emotionally connected to sin or a sinful act, then the things of God, His words, no longer matter. They fall on deaf ears. Because when you love something else more than you love God, you don't care about the things of God. You care about that which you truly love. You know, often when I think about the young men and young women who are no longer at our church, my heart is sad. I think of young men and young women who used to be so fervent for the Lord. They're in choir. They're in Bible studies. They're leaders. They're teachers. They are passionately on fire for Jesus. They go on mission trips. And suddenly, out of nowhere as if a snap of a finger, they don't come to church anymore. What happened to them? What happened to these men and women who used to be on fire for Jesus? I'll tell you what happened to them. What happened to them was that life happened. They began to place greater importance and love for the world than their love for God. Oh, if you were to ask them, do you love God? they say, yeah, we love God because we're still believers. We're still Christians. But they love something else more. And because they love other things more than they love God, they no longer do the things that God desires of them. Do you remember the book of the Revelation? In the letter to the church of Ephesus, there's a condemnation for this church. Revelations chapter 2 verse 4. And the condemnation to the church of Ephesus is what? They left their first love. Oh, they loved Jesus, but life happened. And so they began to love other things more than they loved Jesus, and they left their first love. That's the problem with the emotional connection to sin. We fall in love with sin, and we fall in love with sinful acts. I read somewhere in an article about overcoming pornography that there really is no lasting method for not looking at porn. There are a lot of methods out there, but you can always circumvent the methods. And in this article it said, the only lasting way that you can overcome pornography is that if you love God, more than you love the sin of pornography unless you love God more than the sin of pornography you will never be able to overcome your temptation because you will keep falling into that sin trap but if you love God with a passion and love him more then you will do what he desires you to do emotional connections are hard to break they're very strong That's why when you're emotionally attached to something, it's very hard to love something else. When God instituted marriage in the book of Genesis, there was an admonition he gave to all married couples, specifically to Adam and Eve. What was that admonition? You are to leave and to cleave. And what's the point of that? Unless you break with the emotional bond with your parents, as newly married men and women, you will never be able to love your spouse with a love that is stronger than your love for your parents. You know, the common problems of young couples today is the problems of in-laws. A young wife will tell her husband... You love your mother more. You listen to her. Why don't you defend me? Isn't that true? A young husband will often complain to his wife. When I say no to something, when I don't want something, you run off to your daddy. And he gives you what you want. When the Bible talks about leaving and cleaving, it's transcultural. I know our culture well. It has nothing to do with the Asian culture. It is the truth of God who created us and who created marriage. And he says, You must leave, you must leave the emotional bounds of your relationship with your parents, loosen it so that you can begin to love your spouse as they should be loved. Or else you're going to have a lot of problems when you still have mama's boys and daddy's girls. Likewise, if you don't break the emotional love for the things of the world and of sin and of sinful acts, then you will never be able to really love God as he should be loved for what he's done. It should be no wonderment why many people are not embarrassed by their sin. You know, a lot of people come up to me and say, Pastor, I can't believe it. I can't believe that there are people walking around our church and they know that they've done wrong. But they walk into the church as if they've done nothing wrong in their lives. They even run into people in our church whom they have wronged. And they can look but us in the eye and then simply smile as if nothing has happened. How can they be so proud? Don't they feel anything? And I tell them, you can't do anything about it. Unfortunately, these men and women have grown such thick skins because they love their sinful lifestyle and are so used to it that doing right isn't worth doing. Men and women who have an emotional attachment to sin, unless they are challenged and transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit, which requires yielding on their life, they will not change. And they will not be embarrassed by what they do. They have become emotionally attached to sin. But that's not the worst of it. Look at verse 16. So he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house. And there at the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about 25 men with their backs towards the temple of the Lord, and their faces towards the east. And they were worshiping the sun toward the east. And God said to me, have you seen this, O son of man? Is it a trivial thing to the house of Judah to commit the abominations which they commit here? For they have filled the land with violence. Then they have returned to provoke me to anger. Indeed, they have put the branch to their nose. Therefore, I also will act in fury. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. God now leads Ezekiel inside the holy place, inside the inner court of the temple, and he sees 25 men. These 25 men were most likely priests because only priests were allowed inside the temple. And these 25 men as priests should have been offering sacrifices to God for their sins and the sins of the people, but instead what were they doing? Verse 16. They were worshiping the sun in the east. Since Solomon's temple was built facing the east as instructed by God, what you have here is that the priest's back, as they bowed and faced and worshipped the sun in the east, their backs was against the holy of holies. Their back was against the very presence of God. They literally turned their back on God. What was worse is that they were guardians or supposed to be guardians of the things of God. They were to set an example to the people, but they did not. They were supposed to obstruct and hinder sin from spreading, but in actuality they cause sin and wickedness to spread, note this in verse 17, to the entire nation, for they have filled the land with violence. And that's why God was provoked to anger. Because the sin had spread to the entire land caused by the actions of these leaders. You see, in the final progression of sin, 1D, that is a part of the progression of sin, it is a sin that causes others to sin. Sin that causes others to sin, that called for God's final verdict and judgment. It is when sin has been extended beyond yourself to affect others. My friends, don't you ever think that sin is localized on the individual. There are many people who believe, don't bother me. That's my problem. I'm not affecting anyone. But my friends, you need to understand something about sin. Sin is never localized only to you. Sin is never contained only to you. It will make its way to affect other people. Remember the admonition of Jesus to his disciples? do not cause any of these little children to sin. That's how God so strongly hates it when sin causes the downfall of others. You don't believe me that sin is not localized? Think about the sin of gambling. It may begin with you, but for sure, when addicted, it affects the entire family. How about an affair You think it just relates to you. When it gets out, it affects your own children, your own spouse. Your reputation, especially in our culture and community, your reputation affects other people, affects your children. I know our Chinese-Asian culture. You won't let your kids marry someone else. Because their father or their mother has a bad reputation. Whether that's right or wrong is another lesson for a different sermon. However, your reputation affects your family. Sin is never localized with one person, it does affect others. That is what makes the progression of sin so grave so ugly, so detestable to God, that he says, my final judgment has to come. Chapter 9 is a continuation of the vision. speaks of God's punishment to the people. I'm just going to have you note three verses, beginning in verse 4. But in verses 1 to 3, in chapter 9, God calls his so-called angels of death. He calls six of them. And then he calls a seventh, a man wearing linen, the commander of this destruction force. And he gives this seventh man an instruction. Look at verse 4 and 5 of chapter 9. And the Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the man who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. To the others he said in my hearing, Go after him through the city and kill Do not let your eyes spare, nor have any pity. God said, I will spare those who remain faithful and committed to me. I will spare, I will spiritually mark those who have rejected these sinful practices. The rest do not spare. I do not have pity on them. You see, God is a very fair judge. His judgments are always perfect. He knows who's living for Him. He knows who are not. So, we who are living righteously can take assurance in that. But look at verse 6. Utterly slay old and young men, maidens and little children, and women. But do not come near anyone on whom is the mark and begin at my sanctuary. So, they began with the elders who were before the temple. God's judgments. No, no age discrimination. God's judgments do not discriminate based on age. Utterly slay old and young men. Old people can sin just like young people, children can sin just like adults, women can sin just like men. And God says, begin at my sanctuary. And so they began with the elders. The angels of death were to begin with the religious leaders in the temple because they were the ones responsible for the sins spreading throughout the nation. They did not do the things right before God. And this is a warning and an admonition to all those who lead in the church, whether it's life group leaders, whether it's deacons, whether it's elders, Anyone who is a leader in the church or even in the community who are responsible for righteous living, if they practice wickedness, the Bible says, be warned, judgment is coming. When it is done, the angel or the commander, the man in linen, gives the report, verse 11, I've done as you have commanded. Chapter 9 shows us the second principle, number 2. God punishes those who sin. God punishes those who sin. I know it's not a new lesson. It's a lesson we knew, we know as children. But it's worth reminding ourselves that God punishes people who sin. As someone once said, the assurance of forgiveness is not an excuse to continue sinning, because there are consequences and punishment for sin. The assurance of salvation, I know that Jesus Christ through His shed blood will forgive me of my sin. It's wonderful, but it is not an excuse. It is not a license to continue sinning because if we do so, even for the believer, the Bible is very clear, even in the New Testament, there are consequences and punishment for sin. It is a good reminder for us. And then we come to chapter 10 and 11. Chapter 10 and 11 has to be one of the saddest chapters in all of the Bible. Because for the first time in many centuries, God's glory on earth would no longer reside on earth. He will finally be leaving the very temple he had instructed Solomon to build as a place where he would reside. Before we get to chapter 10 and 11 and spot highlight some verses there, put your fingers in chapter 10 and would you go back to 2 Chronicles chapter 7. I want to take you back to when the temple was first dedicated, when the construction was completed and the temple was dedicated. I want you to see something that happened. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 1 to 3. Let me read these three verses. Second Chronicles, chapter 7, verse 1 to 3. When Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. When all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down, And the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and praised God, saying, For he is good and his mercy endures forever. Three times, in only three verses, at the dedication of the temple, the glory of God is mentioned. The glory of God in its brilliance and its majesty recited in the temple and everyone was in awe and they bowed their faces to the ground for he is good and his mercy endures forever what happened to the fervor of those people to worship God in contrast now to what's happening Ezekiel chapter 8 to 11 the people are no longer glorifying God And praising Him, they have forgotten Him. And because God will share His glory with no one, much less sin and wickedness that had permeated even into His very temple, as recounted in chapter 8, God's glory could no longer remain in the temple. God had put up with a lot from His people, and enough was enough, so He's going to start leaving. And in verse 4, Ezekiel, see that God had moved from the Holy of Holies down to the threshold of the temple, the doorway of the temple, and surprisingly, he pauses there. Look at verse 4. Then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub and paused over the threshold of the temple. Chapter 10, verse 4. And the house was filled with the cloud. And the court was full of the brightness of the Lord's glory, and the sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard even in the outer court, like the voice of Almighty God when he spoke. God is leaving at the doorframe, at the doorway to the temple. He pauses. It's as if he's reluctant to leave his place, his people. He doesn't want to go. And at the doorway, what does he do? He does something before he leaves. He shows the majesty of his glory. He shows just how amazing he was. He showed his full glory that the entire temple was covered in his glory. Even the courtyard heard the glory of God. How in the world do you hear the glory of God? It was so majestic and so brilliant that the sound of it was like the Almighty God that even those on the outside heard the glory of God. Why did God show His full glory as He's about to leave? It's as if it was a reminder of what was in the past and what could have been and what they will be missing from now on. Oh, if these people could have responded like they did back in 2 Chronicles 7 where they bowed and worshipped God and proclaimed that His mercies endure forever, if only they had responded in repentance, the glory of God would have still resided in the temple in Jerusalem and God surely could have taken care of the invading forces of the Babylonians like He did with the Assyrian army. They could have lived in this beautiful city, basking under the glory of God in their midst. But they would rather choose the ugliness and the dirtiness of sin, things that you and I have to do in the darkest chambers of our hearts and in our homes because we're so afraid that other people would find out and see. They would rather choose the dirtiness and the ugliness of sin more than the brilliant glory of God. And God said, you could have had this. My friends, when you and I sin, there's always regret and remorse. But often it's too late. We sin and we say, oh, Lord, let me do a, take a mulligan, let me do a do-over. I want that. I want that condition when I didn't sin I made a mistake. I'm so sorry. Give me another chance. I want it like it was before. It's too late. You must live with the consequences of your sin. Yes, God will forgive you. But it could have been so much better. But now you must live with the decisions you've made. In verses 18 and 19, the glory of God moves again. And now he pauses just outside of the temple complex now. He was at the doorway to the temple. Now he's at the outside of the complex. But he's still reluctant to leave. He doesn't want to go. He hovers there. Look at verse 18 and 19. Then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted their wings and mounted up from the earth in my sight. When they went out, the wheels were beside them, and they stood at the door of the east gate of the Lord's house. And the glory of the God of Israel was above them. He paused again. He stopped. He, he doesn't want to go. This is his building. These are his people. He's reluctantly leaving a place he loves He's at the east gate, at the edge of the temple complex, and he stops there. And he pronounces a condemnation that's found in chapter 11. In verses 1 to 15 of chapter 11, he condemns Israel's leader as he looks back and sees what they are doing. He sees how in verse 2 of chapter 11, they are thinking of ways to sin. Can you imagine that? They're just not simply passively sinning. They're thinking of active ways to sin. They're giving wicked counsel, verse 2 tells us. And so he condemns them all the way to verse 15. The condemnation is so great, the judgment is so great, that Ezekiel says, Lord, Lord, mercy. And in verses 16 to 21 of chapter 11, God says, don't you worry, Ezekiel. I will preserve a remnant. I will save those who follow my ways. Because God's judgment is not only fair, but he's also very gracious. After he pronounces his condemnation from the east gate, there's a final movement. Jump down to verses 22 to 23 in chapter 11. So the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them. And the glory of the God of Israel was high above them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain, which is on the east side of the city. The glory of God crosses the Kidron Valley... And stops again on the Mount of Olives. And if you've ever been to Israel, specifically in Jerusalem, when you stand on the Mount of Olives, you have a panoramic view of this beautiful city of Jerusalem, even today. Tradition tells us it was on the Mount of Olives that Jesus looked over the city of Jerusalem and he wept for the city. The glory of God stopped on the Mount of Olives. And he saw in this one last scene a city that he so loved. A city that he wanted to be the eternal capital and will be in the future. He looked upon the people that were his children, a chosen people. He looked and saw a people that he loved, a people that he loved but had rejected him He didn't want to go, but he had to go because a holy God could have nothing to do with sin. This would be the final pause, and from here on the Mount of Olives, he left. I need you to understand something, number three. God leaves when there is sin, but reluctantly because of his love. God leaves when there is sin, but reluctantly because of his love. God could have said in one verse, and I left. It takes him two chapters in the Bible to say, I'm leaving, I'm leaving, I'm leaving, I'm leaving. And here's the sad part no one cares. No one cares. No one says, Stay, stay. No one cares. God stops three times. No one seems to care. And he leaves. Verse 24 to 25, the end of the vision. And the Spirit took me up and brought me in a vision by the Spirit of God into Chaldea to those in captivity. And the vision that I had seen went up from me. So I spoke to those in captivity all the things the Lord had shown me. Ezekiel was brought back to the exiles in Babylon where he recited and he recounted to the elders who were gathered what he had just seen. Will our church ever care if one day God's glory and His presence left this place? Will we ever become so preoccupied with our own lives, preoccupied with doing church instead of being the church, that a few years from now, a few decades from now, we won't care when God's glory leaves? May it never come. It's so sad the nature of sin. We all think that sin is fun and wonderful, but sin is ugly, it is sorrowful. That's why we need to be aware of the progression of sin. We need to remember that God punishes those who sin, and that God leaves when there is sin, albeit reluctantly, but He must leave because He is holy. And so if you desire today to have a depth of fellowship and intimacy with Jesus, then sin must not be a part of your life. I know we're not perfect. But to gain that intimacy with Jesus, we must actively desire not to live in sin. It seems to end so badly for these people. What a depressing way to end. But you know, God so loved the world that He did what? He sent His one and only Son, Jesus Christ, to die. That whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. You may ask the question, did the glory of God ever return? Did the physical presence of the glory of God, God himself, ever return back on earth? It did. He was gone for 400 years. Yes, God still was sovereign over this world. God was still at work. But in what are known as the 400 silent years between the book of Malachi and the book of Matthew, where was God? God. His physical presence, his Shekinah glory was not here. But it did return. More than 400 years later, it returned. And Luke chapter 2, verse 8 to 14, tells us that moment. You know it well. You've memorized it. Perhaps you've never put it together. Luke chapter 2, verse 9, to the shepherds. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. The first time in 400 years that the glory of God came back to earth was to those shepherds. It came in the person of Jesus Christ. Verse 13, And suddenly there was with the angels a, heavenly, a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, What? Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Glory ascribed to God because the glory of the Lord was in their midst. Wonderful. Jesus Christ is Emmanuel, God with us. Now, the glory of God will no longer reside in the temple or in a building. Now the glory of God would reside in a person, the wonderful thing today about living in this age of grace is that God promises that He will never withdraw His presence again. It was a one-time act in history. Matthew 28 verse 20, John 14:17 assures us, God will never withdraw His presence again. When we accept Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit resides in us, He never leaves. Once saved, always saved. But that assurance is not a license for us to sin. Because while the Holy Spirit, God himself, God the Holy Spirit will never leave us, there may be a separation of relationship because of our sin. It's like the example if you're fighting with your spouse. You're still married to your spouse, but you're just not on talking terms. If you're fighting with the Lord because of sin... You're still a believer, but God's not going to answer your prayers, the book of James tells us. God's not going to hear your appeals. Why should he? You're an open rebellion. You're not on talking terms. So if you want to be separated from God in his majestic glory, then continue to live in sin. But may it be this morning the challenge of our hearts is that we would search our hearts and ask God for cleansing to clean even the darkest regions of our hearts and our action so that we can enjoy the sweet fellowship there is with the living God who wants to pour out His blessing and His grace and His mercy in our life who wants us to experience life and to experience abundantly that life. But that can't happen if sin and sinful living is a part of your life. It can only happen when there's repentance and there's sanctification and there's confession. Do it today. Search your hearts and ask God to cleanse you. Let's pray. Thank you for your word. Convicts even my heart this morning. When I see the tour you took Ezekiel on, Lord, into the temple, I think of my own life. And a tour in my life and of my life would not be a very nice tour. I'm sure it is the same case for many here this morning. This morning, I pray you would cleanse and cover us with the blood of Jesus Christ. The sin that we so enjoy and the sinful living that we won't give up will be something that we're willing to let go of. So that as we are emotionally detached from sin, we will emotionally cling on to the God who saved us through His Son, Jesus Christ. We want to experience your glory. We want to be a part of it. We want to see it in our lives. May it be so in the way we live. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.